Hello, and welcome to Ready for Anything, a podcast about getting poised for greatness. I'm Linda Lucina, the Director of Special Projects at Entrepreneur Magazine. Today, we're lucky to have as our guest Shane Snow. Hi, Shane. Hi, Linda. He's the author of Smart Cuts, How Hackers, Innovators, and Icons Accelerate Success. It's a book that's been described as a mashup of Malcolm Gladwell, Tim Ferriss, and MacGyver. He's also a serial entrepreneur in his own right, one who's used his ventures to help, in part, pay for his grad school Columbia journalism. He's now the co-founder of Contently, a technology company that brings together writers and publishers of all stripes. Today, we'll talk about what entrepreneurship has taught him, how it shaped him, and how you can learn to think differently. But first, a word from our sponsor. Ready for Anything is sponsored by Intel. Small business owners can't afford to choose between A or B. If both help your business, you want A and B. With Intel-powered two-in-ones, you get performance and mobility, power and freedom. That's the power of and. Experience it at smallbusiness.intel.com. Thank you very much for being part of our podcast today. I'm really, really excited to have you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs> so um, one of the things that we do in this series is untangle how people got where they are and uh, the thinking that sort of led to that. You are a serial entrepreneur. Uh, can you uh, just sort of list off some of the ventures that you've uh, been involved with? Yeah, I guess from like a lot of entrepreneurs, right? Since I was in high school, I've been doing things that, that allowed me to not have my uh, have a boss, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and the first thing that I did that was significant was I had a friend in high school who was this internet whiz. I grew up in southeast Idaho where there was not a whole lot of internet. And a friend of mine was this internet whiz, and he started an online greeting cards website that uh, was pretty successful. He was making content and selling ads, and I decided to start a competing online greeting cards website. Of course. And uh, cause I thought I could do better ones than him. And then a friend of mine started another competing one, and we built email lists and we traded traffic and we did a bunch of things. And that was my first digital venture before that. You know, I sold Facebook cards and all the things that you do when you're a kid and a little bit entrepreneurial. So that was the first one. And actually, my co-founder today at my current company, Contently, was that guy who was, uh, was my competing greeting card site back in high school. Uh, but I did a bunch of things. In college, I did uh, web design for small business owners in order to put myself through school and eventually decided to make some of my own websites. I was building websites for people. They were making money off of those sites, and I realized that I could be making those sites for me and making money in the same way. So I started a bunch of e-commerce sites. I sold saddles, like horse saddles. <laughs> Perfect. I grew up in Idaho, so it made sense. There's There, there was a, a gap in the market for online saddle sales. Who'd have thought? So I sold those. I, I did a whole bunch of things, a bunch of things that didn't work and that did. And uh, I had an online printing site that the first I would take orders and then resell printing services. And then I made a, a search engine for printing price comparisons. If you want to print out brochures, there's a hundred vendors on the internet. I'd help you find the best price and I'd take a cut. So a lot of those things. Uh, I even had a uh, one of the ones that failed was a, a sort of proto Pinterest a website where you could find things around the internet that you liked and collect them and put them up on on your own pages and collections and things and it wasn't that good and then Pinterest happened and I sort of shook my fist in the air. <laughs> so a whole bunch of things that uh, that happened. Most of them at some sort of intersection between digital technology and media. So content creation, I did stuff in music and gaming, and on the way, you know, journalism became my passion. I realized that I wanted to be a journalist, so it took me to Columbia J School, and uh, and so now what I'm doing is sort of the culmination of a lot of 
entrepreneurial projects combined with my passion for storytelling and journalism and doing something in technology there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, you, uh, you were a year ahead of me at Columbia. I was, I was also at Columbia. We did not know each other. Um, but um, you were so fancy already a year after graduating that you were a guest in one of my classes. And one thing that really stuck with me uh, it, that you discussed was that uh, you didn't want to trade money for time. How did you arrive at that? And can you sort of talk a little bit about that exchange? Yeah, it, it's something that I think is core to what entrepreneurship is, right? You're trying to build something that works without you in it. You know, the analogy that I use is you can, I use this ditch digging analogy a lot. You could spend eight hours a day digging a ditch or you could spend four hours a day thinking about how to build a machine that can dig two ditches for you or whatever. So that's the idea of what's being an entrepreneur. And when I was in undergrad, I was studying business and computer science. Mm -hmm. And I got an internship where I was building, I was doing web programming for $7 an hour. And I calculated down to the minute, you know, the days would go by, the minutes would go by. I calculated down to the minute how much money I was making. I mean, you know, another 10 cents. And it was really depressing. <laughs> Fortune. Fortune's being made. Fortune's being made. Slowly. It was really depressing. That's a really low rate anyway. I was in Idaho. You make you know, 80 to $100 an hour here in New York if you're doing web design, web programming. But I was making $7 an hour. And I was just doing the math and just realized that that was pretty terrible. But I saw that my boss, so this was a startup. It was the, you know, the first startup in this small town in, in Idaho, the first tech startup. And uh, you know, the guy who was running the company He's making a lot more money off of the work that we were doing for $7 an hour. And kind of realized through that and you know subsequent ventures and jobs, the second internship I got was at the other tech startup in this town in Southeast Idaho. And there's this one guy and he was paying me, I think I got up to $8 an hour there. He was a great guy. And uh, it was basically me and him, I was his intern. And he was trying to, he would start out as a consultant where he was selling his services by the hour and using interns like me to, to help fulfill that. But then he started building software to automate those services so he could sell a subscription that didn't force him to be in it day after day, that it could work without him. So I think those lessons kind of added up to this appeal of any sort of typical hourly job, you literally are trading your time for money. And what if instead you were trading your time for something that was more like an investment? that could make money without you or operate without you so that you can then focus your time on other things. That's a lot more appealing. There's this famous, and this isn't groundbreaking or new by any means, but there's a famous quote that you should, as a business owner and entrepreneur, be working on your business, not in your business. And I think that's the, the thing that I, you know, I talked about in your class in Columbia. That epiphany led me to, you know, when I was building websites for people to stop doing that at an hourly rate for people and start making things that could then, you know, this saddle site that I mentioned, I, every three months I'll get a check for $100 still from it. It's not much, you know, I stopped working on it years ago, but it still exists on the internet and someone somewhere clicks on one of those saddles and buys it from, you know, whoever it is that I send them to and I make a commission. That sort of thing is, uh, is an awesome feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what's uh, particularly interesting is with Contently, there's a lot of um, uh, freelancers. You have 55,000 freelancers that uh, sort of work. Yeah, yeah. And there's been a lot of talk about uh, the freelance economy and the gig economy. And it gets me thinking about how people are thinking about the gig economy incorrectly, that it's not about gig for gig. Right. It's about sort of uh, thinking beyond an assignment and thinking beyond hourly work 
and thinking to sort of making these little mini empires. I mean, that there's that possibility. I mean, do you what are your what are your thoughts on on that? I mean, are people sort of missing that that potential? I mean, we see a lot of the trends as they're happening, right? When it comes to the freelance economy, and one thing that's pretty clear is people that are successful freelancers are good at working on things that are compounding, right? That accrue to something bigger than just you know, I wrote this assignment or I did this project and I got paid for, you know, the hours that I put in. And so that manifests in a few ways. A lot of freelancers that are really good end up starting consulting firms and they hire other people or they start agencies or you'll see a lot of consulting firms build products that then they can sell over and over and over again. But one thing that freelancers that are smart, that are really successful do is they build their, like you said, empire they build a personal brand and a personal following that can follow them to anywhere that allows them to raise that effective hourly rate. So if you have an email list with 10,000 subscribers, you're going to be able to be more successful at the projects that you do as a freelance journalist, get hired at a better rate, demand better rates, that sort of thing, and effectively your hourly rate goes down. And so you're sort of building that business. What you're working on is the machine that digs the ditch rather than just digging the ditch yourself. I think also specializing as a freelancer in something is an effective way to do this too. You know, a TaskRabbit that will do anything for anyone has a hard time raising their rate or, or, you know, getting a a higher rate. And you're seeing this sort of stratification in the freelance economy where you have companies like WorkMarket is an example of a company that sort of like contently, but for freelance, like ATM repair people and, you know, very technical things that if you have this deep expertise that you've built and you have connections and all of that, you can charge more. And so, yeah, what you're doing with your career is, yes, you're working and you're getting money for that work, but you're building something that allows you to scale that. Yeah. It's sort of uh, being able to think beyond your desk in a way. It's an idea that you talk about in Smart Cuts. um, And uh, you say that one of the things that sort of holds people back is they, they often just don't imagine thinking big enough, you know. Talk a little bit about that. What happens with that gap? Why why does that gap exist? Doesn't everybody want to be the biggest and the best, you know? I don't understand. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, a big theme of that book is expectations and convention, that a lot of our culture and our education and just the way we do things in society and in business is based on look at what people did in the past and do that. And when you look at the history of breakthroughs in business and arts and science, you see those are the people who make breakthroughs are the ones that approach their industry or their field from a radically different angle. So that's the theme of the book. The idea, what I write about in the book uh, that you're alluding to called 10x thinking, is this thing that a very smart person, the guy who runs the crazy Google X lab at Google that makes self-driving cars, he said, he said it a bunch, but he said to me, it's easier to do something that's 10 times better, to make something 10 times better than just 10% better. Mm-hmm. And that kind of defies math and logic, but you hear a lot of billionaires say the same thing too. And in fact, Peter Thiel wrote a book where he talks about this idea that like 10x is better. And it's counterintuitive, but the idea is that if you can make something or work on something that's so much bigger than is expected, that you the story, that vision, allows you to attract the kind of talent and support that you need to actually make it happen. And also, it's much easier to sell something that's 10 times better than what's out there than it's just 10% better than what's out there. So if your product is a little bit better than your competitor's product, there's switching costs and there's you know this sort of uphill struggle still. If it's 10 times better, you don't even need to do marketing because word spreads that this is, is so much better. And so that's the idea. It's hard, though, for us naturally just to think big because 
things are impossible until they're possible, right? And that's why, you know, another thing that I'm, I'm writing about now on a, a separate project is one of the, the stories is the, the five-minute mile, you know, sort of a famous story. We thought that it was humanly impossible to run faster than a five-minute mile until someone did it, and then the next year, 12 people did it, right? And that's kind of the nature of, of breakthroughs. So this 10x thinking is this idea, what I boil it down to in the book and what we, we try to talk about in our business is that if you pick aspects of what you're doing and say as a as almost an exercise, what if it had to be 10 times better? That's such a big goal, such a big task that you can't just work a little harder. You can't just put in extra hours. You can't come in over the weekend. You have to fundamentally rethink what it is that you're working on and boil away the things that are nice but not essential. And, uh, and that's where breakthroughs happen. That's how it can actually be easier because when you boil those things away, you can then triple down on the thing that's essential. You can make the thing that's easier to sell because it's so much better. And that's the goal. It's not that it's easy, but it's easier. In my past, you know, I worked on all of these small business ideas that got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until now I'm working on something that is much bigger and has a really big potential to change a lot of industry and, uh, you know, a lot of lives. And, uh, you know, we have 100 employees and, you know, my max was three employees before this. And it's, I'm still working just as much on this project as I was on the smaller projects, but it's easier now because we have the talent and the support and the investors and the press that actually cares about what we're doing versus my saddle site that no one cared about, no one wanted to work for. I cared about it. It's the only place that I buy saddles, to be very honest with you. Uh, one of the things that you talk about in, in some of your videos is when you got started in the very, very beginning, uh, before you got seed money, you had 48 cents in the bank. Uh, you took a screenshot of your, your bank account. Uh, tell me a little bit about that moment where it was sort of a do or die, sort of a make or break, but you still had the, the presence of mind to take a screenshot of the bank account, right? Because that's a different that's a different move, right? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I wanted to commemorate that point, right? So when we started the company, there were three of us co-founders. One had enough, uh, he had a, another business that was doing well, that he was making income, he was in a good spot. Uh, Dave, the second co-founder, our CTO, he had some savings and I had credit cards. And we, you know, we kind of gave ourselves a, you know, six months roughly to either get the business to a point where it was making money or where we could raise money or sort of prove the business to that point. Yeah, I got down to 48 cents of my bank account. And it was one of those moments where there was a risk of us, you know, sort of losing this dream and it not working out. But I took a screenshot because I knew that it would be a great story at some point. I was confident that I would be okay, right? That if this didn't work out, something else would work out, hope this would work out, believe that it would work out enough to keep going past that point. But it was sort of a motivating time, I guess, that, you know, things now are a lot less dire. But thinking back to, you know, we really went as far out on the limb as we could, right? Like until the limb was gone to make this happen. And I think that that's a lesson to me. And the other things that I've done, you know, entrepreneurially, I guess I have a bit of creative ADD, which is why journalism appealed to me. I could always work on a different story. My curiosity could be slaked every time. This is the thing that I've stuck to the longest in my life, in five years. I've never done anything for five years. And I think that was a moment where I realized that I was so passionate about what we were doing that I wanted to keep going, even though I was digging myself a huge financial hole. And so looking back on that and the times when it's hard now, you know, that's a, a fun thing to think about and to remember. The reason something like what we're doing works, I'm convinced, is because we have the passion for what, what it is and we're willing to go through those times when other people would quit. If we were simply chasing money and not chasing 
a dream and a vision, then we would have given up and, you know, gone into real estate or something more predictably, <laughs> uh, you know, easy to make money. And, uh, you know, I'm glad we stuck through it. But I, I think one of the headlines that got written then by someone, because we raised seed money soon, soon after that, someone wrote the headline, Contently co-founder starts with 48 cents, is now a millionaire. <laughs> I, I love that. It's convenient. That's none, lovely. None of those things are true, but uh, but it's a great story. It's a great rumor to spread about yourself. You know, if you can just even just kind of like whisper that, that's a great thing to have. One of the things that you, you, uh, you've talked about is you made a list. You went through uh, youngest billionaires, uh, fastest uh, success stories. You made a list of superlatives to kind of uh, sort of break down what do they have in common? You know, was there some sort of pattern? You know, so my question to you is what makes you make that list? There were a couple of motivations, I think. One is I was trying to build a business that was not average. Average by definition is average. That's conventional. So I wanted to see... You know, who are the, one of the things that you do in business, I guess, you look at best practice, who does things well. I wanted to look, and this is a theme of the book I ended up writing, I wanted to look at sideways best practices across different types of things where you can be successful. What do people do to dramatically beat the average? And what are the patterns in the the way they think, right? Because every story is a little different, but the way you think, it seems like this idea of, you know, hacker thinking or whatever, rethinking your industry is a theme that you see. And so I made this list of superlatives initially because I was writing about fast-growing companies or successful businesses as a, sort of a killing two birds with one stone. I wanted to learn from my own business, but I also wanted to write because i that's my passion. I love writing. I, I love to stay in the journalism game. So that initially was it. The expanded list of superlatives was when it got interesting. So I made these lists of fastest-growing businesses ever, youngest self-made billionaires, you know, fastest self-made millionaires. What do they do? all of that beyond just being in the right spot at the right time. And then one day when I made the list of superlatives in kind of every category, I said, who's the Michael Jordan of every industry and sport ever? Who's the youngest Nobel Prize winner? You know, what's the fastest revolution that ever happened? That's when things got really interesting because I saw that the patterns were remarkably similar. Entrepreneurs that break barriers are very similar to scientists that break barriers and to artists that blow people's minds and often don't get credit for what they do, they do until years later. So that became the basis of the of the book, is what are the patterns of people who think differently? How do you train yourself to think differently if you wouldn't normally think that way, right? Like it's kind of a, <laughs> a circular sort of mouthful to, to say, but because the world is always going to change and whatever business you're in is going to change, how do you train yourself to think in ways that allow you to be predisposed to that kind of breakthrough behavior? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems to me that you had uh, sort of an ear to the ground to patterns. And I, I think that's what's the most interesting thing to me. Lots of people want to do well. Not very many people make a list of people who do well. I do this thing that I, I call neurotic spreadsheeting. I've talked about this a few times before in interviews. But uh, Ben Franklin, what he did when he decided he wanted to be a good writer is he took the best magazine of his day and he line by line broke it down (laughs) and he put the magazine away and tried to recreate the story himself and he did that over and over again he did this really neurotic process and I like to do that you know with things that I want to learn I want to get good at and I think part of it is part of it's the journalistic thing you want to find patterns you want to find the story what's the story of how this happened but part of it is I think the insecurity of and we're trying we're punching above our weight we're trying to do something that's new we, you know, people don't respect us, they don't know us, you know, we're small, we're underfunded, all of that, that sort of hunger, you know, to prove yourself or to prove that you can do it, that sort of drives the neurotic spreadsheeting idea. And, you know, I 
anything that I want to get good at, I first want to look at the patterns. And yeah, I guess that's that's where the, the book came from. But also, that's why our business came together as we saw patterns in the industry, both in the freelance economy and in the, the whole social media thing where every business and every brand wants to be a publisher now. That was a clear pattern, but we, we got to it a little bit earlier than a lot of businesses because we were, I guess, studying it deliberately. I think it's hard for people to, to recreate patterns. It's especially hard for people to see patterns. It's even worse and even more difficult for people to make the initial discovery mm-hmm. of the patterns, right? So that's going even further into the sort of the archaeological process of right. like, ah, what's happening here, right? Um, you, one of the things you talk about in your book is uh, sort of that you can kind of train, you know, you can train yourself to think like, for instance, lateral, lateral thinking. Can you talk a little bit about how someone can train themselves to think differently, how they can put themselves in a place where they are making a list. They are maybe spreadsheeting something out to go look for a pattern. How can they get to the point where they're even imagining that they need to go maybe document something or sort of track something? Like, how do they train themselves to think differently? Yeah, there's, I think, two things that prevent people from this kind of breakthrough sort of mentality or behavior. The one is not thinking weird enough, right? Not being crazy enough or taking the risk or or knowing what to do. The other is the motivation to get there or to do it. So one of the things that I wanted to do with uh, the book is lay out, you know, here are specific patterns, you know, that I've observed as motivation. And once you see that it can be done, then that's inspiring, that's motivating that you want to try. But this not being able to sort of get to the place where you can think weird enough or or differently enough requires kind of that push oftentimes. And my favorite way to push yourself is is through questions that force you to get out of your normal way of thinking. And again, this isn't revolutionary, but I have, and I give speeches about this a lot, like a set of questions that are kind of my standard questions for forcing you to uh, to have to do something differently or, or at least entertain the idea of doing something differently. Uh, the 10x thinking is, is one you know, that we talked about earlier. If you ask yourself the question, what if this had to be 10 times better, then that's a forcing function for you getting out of you know, the, the box, to use the cliche. Other ones that, that you see you know, kind of a big pattern in is uh, what if I had to do this for 100 times cheaper? Mm-hmm. So much cheaper that you can't cut costs. You can't just make it more efficient. You have to fundamentally rethink it. Another one that I really like is how would someone, would X person in a vastly different industry or situation look at this problem? So, and I'm not talking about, you know, how would another business person in another business look at this problem? I'm saying, how would a ballet dancer look at this problem? How would a child look at this problem? How would a fighter pilot look at this problem? How would, you know, someone, an uneducated, illiterate uh, mother of three in India look at this problem if it was given to her? Those kinds of things help you to do that, what you're talking about, lateral thinking, which is kind of that main theme, look at problems and challenges from a different perspective. So how do you train yourself to do that is uh, you sort of force yourself with that sort of list of questions. What you see, and this is something that I'm writing about lately a lot, when I think about the uh, the co-founder trio that we have or successful you know, founders of companies or, or teams and groups is we're building teams. You often have... Uh, people whose roles informally inside of teams are to do those different things. You have the person who is the motivator. You have the person who is the agitator. I just read this great anecdote about the Beatles where uh, Paul and John, you know, they were kind of the main main songwriters for the Beatles. And Paul was uh, the one that always kept a notebook and he was very methodical. He wrote everything down. You know, he was, he was really deliberate and he was kind of the stabilizer 
And uh, John Lennon was the, the crazy one that was a little bit wacky, did too many drugs. He was always banging on the piano and he needed to be reined in. But between the two of them, you know, when, when John was depressed, Paul was motivating. And when Paul was not thinking weird enough, John was. And so that sort of thing, again, it's this uh, pushing you to, to think differently. And, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs naturally are prone to be agitators. But it's not something that, you know, it, it can be nurtured to, I guess, by either being around those people and being inspired and motivated by them or by sort of forcing yourself into a position where you're in a corner. You have to think differently or you're not getting out of the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can force you to pivot or change when you need to. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things we've been talking about is patterns. And um, one of the things that you specialize in is storytelling with Contently. Um, a lot of brands and a lot of uh, sort of different types of companies are trying to uh, take a, a build on patterns of storytelling to sort of you know present their products sort of thing uh, for better for worse in some cases what do you think is next for storytelling given some of these these shifts and people trying to decode and um, decipher storytelling like what do you what do you think is next yeah well so this is where I, I say that marketers ruin everything no they're lovely we really appreciate them. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I'm in the marketing business so uh, yeah. yeah no anything that is a a hot thing or a, a hot term gets co-opted by others. This is my mini rant on protests. I went to the the protests for uh, for climate change. This is a, something that I really care about. And it was interesting to see all the people that were sort of glomming onto the protests with their causes too, you know, loosely related to climate change or maybe not at all. You know, stop police violence for climate change, right? <laughs> maybe it's a good thing, but, you know, people with causes, uh, something to sell, they they tend to, to glom onto things. And so storytelling is the latest buzzword in marketing. But it's something that's been part of marketing forever, and it's also been part of business forever and part of human relationships forever. Stories are what build relationships and make people care, right? When you know someone's story, you're more likely to support them. You're more likely to want to be on their team or to buy their product. And so that's a big thing now because technology has made it so that we can all be publishers. We can tell a lot more stories. We can put a lot more stuff on the Internet. So there's a barrage of content that's going on. Part of what we're trying to do is empower businesses to tell stories in ways that are actually effective and actually provide value. The thing that's not going to change, right, is that fact that great stories are inspiring and make us care. A lot of people are doing random marketing or content as usual under the banner of storytelling. It's not storytelling. You know, top 10 lists for pest control is not storytelling. But great human stories are. I'm interested in the new technologies that are coming out to that are altering the way in which we deliver those stories, right? I was terrified of virtual reality until I put on an Oculus Rift and then decided I need to rethink my whole life. And uh, <laughs> Everything's been a mistake. Yes, everything's a mistake. I think that will be a really interesting um, thing that happens in storytelling. I don't think it's going to change a lot of things that people think it's going to change. Like, you'll be Skyping with an Oculus Rift headset from the Eiffel Tower. I don't know that that's really, you know, FaceTime sort of promised that too, and FaceTime is terrible. I, I decline those calls. But being able to tell stories that are more immersive is going to be really interesting. I think the things that are fundamental to stories, again, are not going to change. Great characters, tension, you know, story arcs that make you care, that are relatable, right? And that comes back to the humanity. That's not going to change. I think we're going to see more businesses and more brands realize that and put their money where their mouth is. And instead of saying, just buy Gillette, they're going to actually go into the lives of people that they care about and telling stories around shared values as a way to build relationships. Because now before anyone buys anything, they go on the internet and they research it. And the kind of company that you want to do business with 
is uh, the kind of company that shares your values. And an increasing, you know, all the studies are showing that this is increasingly important. The best way to convey what values you have are to tell stories and that are actually true to, to what you believe in, who you are. And so I think we're going to see this financial incentive for corporations to do good things and then to tell stories around those things. So again, climate energy is a, a cause that I really care about. A lot of energy companies talk about sustainability. They're going to have to actually make moves business-wise that you know support that, but then they're going to tell stories about why sustainability is important. That's going to be the way that an energy company survives 10, 20, 50 years from now, not sort of the previous way of marketing and advertising of saying everything is awesome and uh, meanwhile you're polluting you know, the river or whatever. <laughs> so I think the congruence thing is the thing that's, that's exciting to me about storytelling. And I talk about this idea of the invisible hand of social media, which I don't think is really a thing and shouldn't be a term that ever gets attributed to me. <laughs> But it's uh, especially for big public figures and public companies um, that have something to lose. Social media is really good at pointing out what you're doing wrong. So there's this now incentive to do things right and to uh, to talk about things in a way that's more human and uh, and more authentic. Yeah, and possibly get the story back on track as well. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Shane, I, I, I just can't uh, thank you enough for, for being part of our chat and being the, the latest part of our series. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is a blast. <laughs> Everyone needs to go and make sure that they uh, pick up a copy of Smart Cuts and also see, keep an eye out for your next project. Um, and, of course, go to uh, Contently for everything that is coming up next. Um, uh, that is our time for today. Um, thanks again to Shane. And to listen to more podcasts from this series, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and follow us on SoundCloud. And before we go, one last word from our sponsor. Ready for Anything is sponsored by Intel. Small business owners can't afford to choose between A or B. If both help your business, you want A and B. With Intel-powered two-in-ones, you get performance and mobility, power and freedom. That's the power of and. Experience it at Small Business. Dot intel.com.